Blog Talk Radio. Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Welcome to our Black Friday episode, 2015. I am with Maggie Legan. Legan. I knew who I was with. I was just creating excitement. I wanted people to sit back and wonder, who is he with? Drum roll, please. (laughs) So we have Maggie back. And Maggie is uh, an amazing athlete in her own right. And by the way, you just uh, tore up a race just the other day, right, Maggie? Yeah, yeah, I did. I went to San Diego and competed in the Epic Series race and ended up taking the W, so it was a pretty good day. Nice. And that, were you defending your title? Did you win that last year? So, yeah, actually, I did defend my title this time. I competed and won the San Jose uh, Northern California Division a couple months ago and then came back for the belt again this last weekend in San Diego. So all in all, yeah, it's been a good season for sure. Cool. So we're going to give away a lot of cool stuff today, and I'm going to need your help on this, Maggie. Oh, for sure. I'm stoked. Yep. And, you know, for all these people that are going to listen to this later that didn't take the time to scribble out a few questions for us, shame on them, right? Oh, man, they're missing out. (laughs) Seriously. Ridiculous. I just want to make a point to to let everybody know that if I tell you that I'm going to give some stuff away, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not trying to get into your life and email you or spam you to death. I don't have too much time in my life left to play games like that. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm looking at like $1,700 worth of stuff and just looking at how could people not want to join in and ask some questions. First off, you get it answered. Secondly, you get some really amazing stuff. So, yeah, it's crazy. It's a holiday thing. I'm just trying to give a little something back, and people are so shy. They think I'm ISIS or something. (laughs) Right? Oh, my gosh. Well, and, and, you know, we should go ahead and point out that the people that ask questions that are going to be sitting on their hands wondering if they won something, everybody that wrote questions to us is a winner. Absolutely. We got nobody going to go home without a little something something. Well, you know, and there's no there's no dumb question, you know? Like everyone's at different levels and you have a ton of knowledge and information to share, and I'm just over here trying to give whatever I've got to share and uh yeah, so progress is progress, baby. Okay, let's go ahead and start with uh the first question. Yeah, sounds good. So, I'm looking at the first question from my good friend Casey Jindra. She's out there in Colorado, and she's asking, 
What is the perfect strength to speed ratio for a competitive obstacle course racer? And are there any stats on it? Yeah, so she does mention that she she assumes that it would vary with every race distance, um, but that there's an average for a basic Spartan sprint since most of them you know, are pretty competitive for the money and such. So she's curious about that perfect ratio of speed to strength. Uh, what's your insight? Well, I think that the problem lies in the fact that the sport is so new that yeah. it's very difficult to really get a handle on these types of stats because there's just not enough research available out there. And I think that in this sport so far, everybody's kind of trying to make their way and really not sure what the heck they need to be doing in order to get the performances they're looking for. Yeah. But I would say, I guess in a broad stroke statement, I would have to say that, number one, this thing she's talking about, this strength and speed ratio, um, I would like to also add an element of weight. And I think this strength to weight is a very critical consideration in all of this. And I think that that's an easier metric to leverage. You know, I think you can get to a place personally where you can start to feather back how much you should be weighing relative to the strength that you sacrifice. So, for example, in my case, and I'm not racing, but let's just say in my case, I'm real easy. If I drop 20 pounds, everything is going to get easier for me. Now, on the other hand, when you get to a place where potentially, and I'm talking about a male in, in this circumstance, that you're running at about 10 or 11% body fat and you're going to try to pull down 10 pounds because people tell you lighter is better, you may mm -hmm. find that the sacrifice in strength will start to hurt you. Um, but then the other argument might be is that where obstacles are concerned, being lighter would not require nearly as much strength as it might when you were trying to lift 10 more pounds. So it's a yeah. very, very sticky wicket. I think it's really difficult to figure this out. But now that she's got it out, out there for me, I'm going to do a little research and see what I can come up with. And if I do figure it out and come up with a really interesting uh, equation, I will share it with Casey because I do have a way to get a hold of her. Sure, absolutely. And I think just to kind of piggyback or add on to that, uh, I think it's the beauty of obstacle course racing and the frustration that because it is such a new sport, we have athletes from all types of backgrounds. We've got runners, we've got cyclists, we've got triathletes, we've got crossfitters. Um, and I'm looking at the people that are, you know, the competitive, these pro racers. I mean, you look at the, the John Yatskos who are crazy good runners, but strength is not his game, yet he has enough strength for himself to get through these obstacles yet has the speed. So I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, with obstacle course racing, I don't think there really is a perfect strength to speed. It just depends on your body type and how it functions best. I, I'd also offer that I've spoke to several different elite male athletes that have come to the sport. And, for example, John Alban, and he made the point yeah. that he said, you may beat me off of an obstacle by 30 seconds. He says, but I'll steal two or three minutes away from you between the obstacles while we're running. And so Very true. he's sacrificing strength in order to, you know, monopolize on his ability to run well and his endurance and his speed. I don't think he's bugging about whether or not he's adequate enough in the obstacles. I think he, he's he's lean enough where 
His yeah. strength to his weight ratio is not such an issue that it becomes a problem, at least thus far. I mean, obviously enough, he's been right. winning, winning well around the world. So Right. Well, and I think that's a perfect transition into the topic that, that Lawrence wants to talk about. He's another person that put in some questions, and he wants to know the best training mix between obstacles and running. Um, as far as running goes, he was curious about the best method for hill training, uh, for areas where, you know, you, if you live in a flat area. And as I read that, immediately Amelia Boone popped up because, you know, she lives in Chicago where there isn't really a whole lot of steep mountains or hills or anything like that. And so, you know, what's your outlook on that? I know we've spoken to her quite a few times here on the Running Network. So, Well, I have, I have clients that live in different parts of the world where they have little to no hills to play with. Yeah. And typically what I end up having them do is find themselves a treadmill with good elevation. Sure. And then try to get their uh, their incline training in as best they can. Uh, obviously enough, it's it's a problem. You know, I have people in Florida, I have people in Louisiana and areas that are really lowland areas that it's very, very difficult. But I think the other question he was talking about was what's the best mix between obstacles and running? Yep. And what I like to have people do is just kind of do a global assessment of their strengths and their weaknesses. Just look at a ratio of time commitment on a weekly basis. If you're looking at your 100% commitment for, for the week time-wise, and that works out to 10 hours, hypothetically, mm-hmm. then if you find that your upper body strength is lagging, you may want to dedicate, say, three, four hours of this type of training in the week opposed to a lion's share of the running training because I think you can gain your strength much faster than you're capable of improving your running mechanics and running skills and endurance. So I think that there should always be a heavy-handed approach to the running as opposed to the strength training. Um, give you an example, and I keep referring to me as this thing that is incapable of this type of work, <laughs> but even this morning, I mean, I've gotten to a place where we run. We ran uh, five miles of hills this morning, and then we went into this little park, and they have some monkey bars in there. And and I'm getting to the place where I can get across these monkey bars a few times back and forth without any trouble. And my grip strength has improved dramatically, and I haven't really put much energy into it. So giving the level of fitness that I have or don't have and the weight that I have to carry when I do these things, I just found that I've got a really um, dramatic improvement in the way I can carry myself. And I, I, I would love to see that kind of quick improvement in my running ability. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And another another great way, too, that I've found to increase uh, my obstacle, it's mostly technique, right? So obstacles, yes, there are a couple strength-based ones, but a lot of the time with these multi-rigs, with uh, you know the burpees, should you fail something, it's all about technique and it's all about timeliness. So if you can hit the pavement outside the trails and then throw down every mile, you know, half mile, 10 burpees, a few bear crawls, and some push-ups, you're really already transitioning your body uh, into that OCR kind of, you know, athlete that you're aiming to be. It doesn't really, doing static lifts during the week, that might increase muscle mass but it's not going to increase your muscle um, dynamic ability, meaning being able to do burpees, being able to transition from bars to ropes to rings uh, with ease. So those are the things that also I would recommend, 
you know, versus so much like a 50-50 running to obstacle. Like, it's like what you said, focus on your running and sprinkle in some dynamic obstacle work during those runs and you'll be golden. I couldn't agree more. Who else do we have? Yeah, so we have a couple people here that are talking about, you know, uh, racing, running, and Jeff Ellingson is actually wondering how does he know if he's training too hard, all right? Is pain the only way to know? Um, he feels like he's pushing pretty hard and has been relatively pain-free. Um, he was talking, or listening, rather, to Jeff Galloway talk about running shoes, which is always a fun topic for us, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> we always talk about running shoes. Um, but he mentioned that, you know, some few studies that are talking about heel elevation in regards to uh, a decrease and injuries in your calves and in your Achilles. And he's curious what our thoughts are about this kind of study uh, about shoe cushioning compared to, you know, the the barefoot or drop. Okay. All right. Let's. I know he's got a couple other questions here too, but let's, yep. let, let's just kind of tackle his initial questions first. And so he's asking about how to identify whether or not I'm overtraining. I think that's what he's trying to say. Yep. And he's wondering whether pain is the way to figure it out or not. And I don't think pain is a good indicator of being overtrained. I think that pain is an indicator of improper training. Right. Um, being fatigued and lackluster and having p- trouble sleeping and, and you know, just having trouble all the way around, just lethargic, those are pretty much pointing towards being overtrained. And right. And I, I don't think that it's good to look at the level in which you push yourself and try to measure whether the intensity or the the heat that you're putting into the work is what's going to be the mediator for the amount of volume and training you should be putting in. I would suggest that, first of all, he needs to sit back and assess what he's trying to accomplish and then be more progressive about the approach to the training as opposed to taking it day by day and, you know, finding out, well, I survived today, so I'm okay to do this again tomorrow, or I really hurt myself today, so I need a day off. That's right. just not. That's a reactionary approach to training. I don't think it's a good idea. And the other end of it was he talked about Jeff Galloway, and for those of you that don't know who Jeff Galloway is, he became famous as a running coach for the run-walk mentality, where he would get uh, first-time marathoners across the line by offering up... Um, variation of how much time you run versus how much time you walk and being progressive with the amount of time that you're running relative to the amount of time that you're walking over the course of your training program. i got to be honest, I've always hated that program. <laughs> I just got to go out there and say it, and I'm sorry, Jeff, uh, no offense to you, it's just an opinion. But the fact of the matter is I, I don't like to see people walk unless the heart rate response is telling them they need to back off. Sure. I realized that he wrote this program quite a long time ago, and there wasn't that many people that were really paying attention to or savvy about heart rate-specific training. But I really believe that if you're keeping an eye on your heart rate, that's the best governor in respect to determining whether you're going too hard or too fast or whether you need to slow down and or even have to walk. So uh, sure. I guess to be clear on what I was trying to say, and I think I, I might have confused people by saying that I don't like people to walk, I don't like people to train over threshold consistently because that's not going to teach the body anything. In the early stages of a training program, they may very well need to walk a little bit 
but use their heart rate as the guide to determine when they're going to start running again or whether they need to slow down or walk again. Yeah, well, you mentioned heart rate, Richard, and I couldn't agree more because I went from an athlete that could care less about heart rate. I pretty much only knew that it would pound through my chest when I would run and then stop, you know, when I was done. So after being more, uh, I guess, cognitive or aware of it, um, heart rate became a huge thing for me in tracking whether I was overtraining or not. So when he asked, how do I know if I'm training too hard? Usually when you have to ask yourself that, you are. Absolutely. So if if your body is telling you something like, hey, I think we're going too hard, um, the telltale signs are fatigue, muscle soreness, that's almost pretty chronic. Um, I know for me, I get crazy uh, thirsty and hungry, like unsatiable, like it's never enough. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, it's because it's I'm overworking, my body's just working overtime. And also heart rate is important off the training clock as well. Because when you wake up in the morning and you check your resting heart rate, I usually try to track it, you know, throughout the week before races, after, you know, all that kind of stuff. And when I'm overtraining, my resting heart rate increases, you know, pretty significantly. And um, it's pretty much a sure, a sure sign that I'm just pushing too hard, that I need to take a day, you know, drink a bunch of water, stay hydrated, and uh, let my body kind of recover. And, and that has prevented a lot of injuries as well. Yeah, irritable sleep. Too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You're laying in bed vibrating. It's a pretty good sign that you've had a rough day or week, and it's probably time yeah. to take a break. Uh, so his question really in respect to Jeff Galloway was in regard to a 5 to 7% elevation in the heel of the shoes, and they're suggesting that leads to less calf and Achilles injuries. Yeah, well, so interesting. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. I mean... <laughs> First of all, when you are on a, a ledge, when you have your heel elevated above your forefoot, that's going to compromise your posture. This is going to cause you to hyperextend your low back. For anybody listening to this and trying to figure out what I'm talking about, stand up barefoot, look in a mirror, then put a book under your heel, and then stand in front of the mirror and do the same thing and watch how your, your pelvis will shift and you're going to get an anterior pelvic rock. And now what you've done is you've created a hot spot in your L4, L5 region of your back. And you actually, when you're in this position, you're compromising your balance. And what happens is that when you take a step, your point of balance is about uh, 30 inches ahead of you. You're actually falling down onto flat ground. And when you spend all that time in an elevated state like that, your posture is compromised all the time that you're running. So, in fact, I would agree that if you have really, really tight calves, having a little bit of elevation in your heel is going to take a little bit of the stress off your calf and Achilles. But I would, I would aspire to migrate towards a more zero drop over time and work on flexibility to try to improve that range of motion and be able to gather some dorsiflexion in your ankle which is going to require length in the calf and Achilles, sure. which ultimately is going to give you a little bit more room and be less uh, likely to suffer issues like plantar fasciitis and such. So right. I don't agree with him at all, other than if you're injured, maybe you put a little bit of a heel lift in there while you're trying to recover. But the focus would be while you're recovering to improve that range of motion in that heel. 
Right. And so what was the other thing? Oh, he talked about the toe box, too. He said he's gone yeah. to the ultra superiors due to a bunion he's developing. Right. Which, uh, for those of you that don't know what ultras are like, they have a really broad toe box. And he says that he loves the wider toe box, but he's worried that the zero drop is going to be a problem for him. Yeah. And and I would have to assess that on a case-by-case basis. I wouldn't say across the board that go to zero drop. I think there are some people that have a really, really tight Achilles calf complex, and they really probably would be much better suited to about four mil drop, something like that, and they'd sure. be in a better place. I can't help but stress more than anything, especially coming from someone who has had running injuries due to, you know, strike and all that stuff, I can't emphasize enough that it's not so much the shoe as it is the form. And I know we talk about it over and over and over. I'm sure some people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's true. If you are striking properly under your center of mass and you are using that 180 cadence that has proven a decrease in injury, um, the transition between an over-cushioned shoe and a zero-drop shoe is it's almost seamless. I mean, it's going to be a little bit different um, as far as, you know, feel, because you're actually going to be able to feel the ground, which will be new to your body. Um, but I would suggest with him, before he gets so sold on a shoe, let's get sold on proper form, because that is going to be pivotal. Absolutely. Well so, said. for Jeff, I would say, awesome, you're rocking the ultras. Don't worry about the zero drop. Let's talk more about form and how to use that equipment properly. Because, um, you know, I've had the same, like, plantar fasciitis type thing because I was a pretty bad heel striker uh, before changing that gait with you and everything. And so I had a lot of those symptoms and a lot of those problems and similar questions. I'm like, well, I have a lot of pain, but it's pretty, I mean, I can deal with it, you know, spartan up, but there's no need for it, you know? Well, again, I couldn't have said it better myself. The solution is not in the shoe. And I have clients who will come to me and they say, yeah, well, I kind of opted for the stability shoe or I opted for this more cushiony, maximal cushion shoe because I have yada, yada, yada. They give me all these excuses about why they change to the shoe and essentially what they've done is they've run into a salesperson at a shoe store that was well versed in a script provided to them by the manufacturer of a given shoe that has put them in a place where they're defenseless they can only assume that the the person in the shoe store must be an expert and they follow their lead and this is what most people tend to do and if you really look at the history of running shoes over the past 10 years, they've been flip-flopping all over the place. And oh, one, yeah. one minute they say minimal's good, the next minute they're saying maximal's better. And then yep. I, I just don't understand how you can make a 180-degree turn when the physiology of the people that are running has not changed that much. It's true. And so I don't push anybody towards any particular type of shoe. I I look at the way they're moving. I work on trying to help them correct the flaws in the way they're moving. And I like to tell people that you get to a place where eventually you can run in just about anything. Absolutely. Yeah, with exception of a shoe that's got a high heel. Right. (laughs) Well, you know. I mean, I literally, yeah, literally, I have some old shoes that are in my my shed out, out back of my house. 
And I pull them out every now and then when I'm going to cut the grass or something because they're just old funky shoes and I'm doing old funky work. And I come across a pair of Nike airbag type shoes and I cut the grass and I was wounded for the rest of the day. My back was killing me. And I come to realize that the problem was the fact that I actually put my heels on an elevation and I put a hot spot in my low back and I caused grief. And you know, it's funny, I have clients come and they make comments about the fact when they come to see me that I'm typically barefoot. Absolutely. And I spend the most of my day as barefoot as possible, unless I'm off to you know, run a chore or something like that. And of course, I don't run barefoot. I, I wear a shoe that's generally very lightweight and has a zero drop. And I'm a big guy. I'm a big old guy, and I get away with it. So my attitude is if, if I can get away with it, most people can so it seems like uh, shoes are a pretty hot topic in obstacle course racing in general right now. You have people that swear by Innovate, others that swear by the Reebok All-Terrains. And I think um, it's a pretty important topic. And obviously we've had a lot of questions coming through from our callers. So Antonio even asked about running hills as compared to running flat ground. What kind of shoes would we recommend that would fit both of those terrains as well as uh, the fact that he's been wearing zero drop shoes for a while and his feel his feet feel great, which is exactly what we've been talking about. As long as your form is kind of solid, the zero drop does feel better, uh, at least in my opinion. So what would you have to say about running on hills compared to flat ground in well, regards to shoes? I don't think that the terrain should dictate the type of shoe you're going to wear. Yeah, I, I think that it's clear that if you're going to be in um, off-road terrain, that you're going to want some fashion of shoe that has some grabby tread to it so you, you can sure. get traction. And that seems to be the case with almost all the shoes that are being manufactured for obstacle racing to begin with, or trail shoes for that matter. Right. And the majority of those types of shoes are relatively low profile or zero drop. And so the question is not so much what type of shoe to wear going up or downhill, but how to approach going up or downhill. And right. as, as you're familiar with the clinic we did not that long ago, we focused on technique moving up and downhill, and it's tricky business. One of the things that Nicodemus Holland, who's working with us on the clinic, points out is that you should really practice the things that are most difficult. Running downhill is really hard right. to, to do well. I mean, to really master a good and successful and confident downhill assault. Mm -hmm. It takes a tremendous amount of courage, for one, but a lot of self-awareness, I mean, in respect to what you can get away with and what you can't. Right. Uh, I mean, I've got the video, and it's kind of funny, because when you're running downhill, you're screaming, whoa, 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 <laughs> you know, because you're, you're a little nervous <laughs> oh, about how fast you're moving yes. going downhill. It's true. Well, it kind of, you know, it's interesting. So, Antonio and Jeff, they've both now talked about shoes, and it's funny because Jeff also had questions about he said, how how fast is it uh, to run safely downhill? Like, he's afraid of falling forward uh, or landing wrong and tweaking something. And as you just mentioned, I can relate all too well. Uh, running downhill is an intimidating adventure. But what Nicodemus Holland, uh, through the clinic that we had a few weeks ago, it was really helpful to remember that uh, uphill and downhill running are huge factors in races. And it should never be thought of, like the downhill should never be thought of as a time for a break or a time to slow down, but rather a time to speed up. 
So his suggestions as far as getting more comfortable and more confident running downhill was to, of course, maintain that cadence of 180, but at the same time um, practice on a less steep hill and really work on that cadence, that you know, proper form going down, and then increase the, you know, the angle or the steepness of that hill to build that confidence. And I've, I've been doing that now for a few weeks since that clinic. And I can tell you what, I feel like I can fly downhill, you know, with confidence and good form. Because before, man, running downhill would kill my heels and it would kill, you know, all the way up to my knees. But uh, working with that clinic has really transformed downhill running for me. Yeah, you really need to try and reduce the amount of braking that you create yes. as you're going downhill. Because it just obliterates your hips, your knees. It's just really bad juju to try to slow yourself while you're running downhill. It's better just to let it go. And it you, does. And you better to find out how to or what to do in training opposed to just showing up one day on a race and then hoping it's all going to work out for you. Yep. Uh, it's a recipe for disaster. I think I see way, way too many ankle sprains, and a lot of it's oh. got to do with that that uh, just unbridled assault down a, a hill with yep. no skills built in. Yep, there's no pre-thought uh, plan as to how you're going to attack the downhill. And I guess for Antonio, when he's talking about you know running hills or running flat, my recommendation would be run in the shoes that you're going to race in. And I don't care if that means you need two pairs of the same shoe. I know that's what I do. So like my training shoes are the same as my racing. I just have two pairs. So it's important for your body and your feet and your mind to start trusting your feet and trusting in your shoe so that when you hit those kind of obstacles and hills, you don't have to question, wait, this is what I train in, this is not what I'm comfortable in. It's just really important to have familiarity with your equipment as well as you know your body in general. So well, I guess that would be the biggest for me. Yeah, but and I'm glad you brought that up because... There are people that have the notion of wearing a much thicker soled shoe when they run on the road training opposed right. to the type of shoe they wear when they're racing. And that right. change or that shift between a heavy soled shoe to a minimal shoe yeah. is really a bad idea too because you're, there's so many mechanoreceptors. I mean, there's literally 400,000 mechanoreceptors in the bottom of your feet that right. provide information to your central nervous system to make decisions about what muscles to fire, what muscles to contract or release. Right. And when you are in a really heavy-soled shoe, that information is dampened, and your feet essentially get stupid. And it, that lack of information makes it very difficult for your body to respond to the terrain you're ro rolling on. And then you throw yourself onto the terrain without the sole, and all of a sudden you're on information overload, and you don't have any adaptation there, so you, your body's just really confused. So I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. Whatever shoe you decide to roll in, whether it be uh, a low-profile, zero-drop, whatever it might be, um, duplicate that shoe, have, maybe have two pairs of the same type of shoe, one that you would maybe a different tread if you're going to be doing some pavement exactly. running. But uh, from a standpoint of how high off the ground you are and how light it is, try to get it to be as close as possible. Right. My biggest suggestion, don't run on the pavement. <laughs> Just kidding. But I'm a big trail advocate. Yeah. You know, like I'm I'm not a big road runner, but I get, you know, some people are limited for trails and such, so I get it, but man, hit the trails as much as you can because those 
little nooks and crannies of the trail, those build stabilizer muscles. And so if you're training only on flat or if you're training only on a, a level pavement type surface and then you try to jump out into a trail where you're dip, diving, dodging, and weaving, it's going to be a lot different for those muscles as well. So it's something to keep in mind. Well, I tend to do these space plants when I'm on the trail. <laughs> I, 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 like, <laughs> I, like a really, I like a really predictable surface when I run because I'm just not that agile anymore. But that's just sure. me talking. All right, what well, else we got? Yeah, so in regards to that cadence, you know, so we're talking about running uphill, downhill. That cadence of 180, I, w I know you would agree, is really pivotal and something that takes a lot of practice. So Kathy is asking us about, um, she's on her second month of training, and she's a little bit confused because she's listened to our podcast where we're talking about this cadence of 180, but she's concerned because when she does keep that cadence, it gets her outside of that max heart rate for her. So she's curious about what should she do. Well, there's a couple things that she's talking about here. And the conundrum for her is that she's suggesting, and I'm looking at the question, she says that she's in her second month of math training, which, yes. which is Maffetone training, Phil Maffetone's prescription for running. Okay. And what that suggests is that here's an advocate of running at an equation of 180 subtract your age, and that's uh, predictably an aerobic state for you. Mm -hmm. And so what happens with her, she's got this conundrum where when she tries to run at a heart rate that's aerobic and she's trying to push a cadence up to 180, that she can't seem to make that work. I totally understand where she's coming from. I, I just think that just to allow heart rate to dictate the way you move is a problem in itself because if you're making mistakes with the way you're moving and then you're you're you know you're trying to keep this low low heart rate which is going to cause all sorts of things to change she's probably when she's in that heart rate zone she's hoping to be in she's probably overstriding she's probably rolling at about 160 strides per minute and then she's trying to bump that up to 180 but she's not really changed the way she's moving so now she's got conflict between uh, her running skills and her heart rate. You know, it's funny you mention that because in my transition from around a 160 to a 180 cadence, you are obviously one to, to witness and testify, but my strike was very extended, very heel, and when we bumped it up to 180, my heart rate jumped high because I was having to raise my knees you know, and, and change my form, but the more I practice that proper form of, you know, raising my knee, striking at the mid-center, you know, my my center of mass, um, now I'm way more efficient. And so I'm at a 180 comfortable, but my heart rate, where it used to spike when I transitioned, and now it doesn't. So my aerobic base is building, building, building at that 180 cadence where it felt like I was going to die the first time I changed my cadence. Does that make sense? Yes, but the biggest difference between what she's running into and what you ran into mm -hmm. was you ran into somebody that showed you how to correct the way you're moving. And, yeah. then, and then we adapted to 180 strides per minute. And right. then you went through that, that phase where your heart rate was high initially, and exactly. then you started to Settled adapt. In. <laughs> right, and that will happen. But I, I can promise you, and I've seen this more than a couple times, 
where people will just they get little bits of information. So, you know, you got Maffetone who's singing the song about staying aerobic, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very strong believer, obviously enough, in heart rate-specific training, and I think Maffetone's equation is a good one where you're trying to establish a good aerobic training zone. He does a great job with that. Mm-hmm. But the running mechanics is critically, it's critically imperative that it's the first step in the, in the whole process of running is learning to run with good skill. Then yes. you start controlling the volume and the intensity. But when you right. try to control the volume and intensity before you even bother to correct the way you're moving, you're going to get stuck all the time. And, and frustrated. Yeah, and it's just going to be a nightmare for you. I've got a client, incidentally, I'll tell you, i got a guy right now. He, he's about, uh, I want to say he's about 50 years old, and he's a master's Xterra trail running guy, right? And he's mm-hmm. probably one of the top guys in the, in the nation. And I met him because I was training his son, who's a cross-country runner in high school. And his dad occasionally would want to pop up on the treadmill, let me look at the way he's moving. And he's a heel striker. He's basically running like crap. And he goes, oh, I can't get to 180. I've tried it, I've tried it, I've tried it, I can't do it. No matter what happens, I end up right about 165 as best I can do. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I got him to adjust the way he was moving... He very comfortably and very rapidly adapted to that stride frequency. Now, he I don't even have to put a metronome on him. I put him on the treadmill, and I let him run, and I'm uh, arranging the speeds to challenge him. And every now and then, I'll pop the metronome up just to kind of check his, his gait, and he's spot on. And he's just finally got to a place where now his contact point's very near center of mass. He's landing on his midfoot first. Uh, everything about the way he's moving has been improved. And he has no issue with it whatsoever. And he wanted to believe, it was really kind of interesting because here I have his kid who's been drinking the Kool-Aid and doing what I tell him to do. And his his dad tell him to listen to Richard. He knows what he's talking about. But his dad shows up one day and he's wearing a pair of hokas. And And I'm like, what are those? You know, I mean, how could you be sitting here listening to me preach to your son three days a week all the things I'm trying to teach your son to do, all the reasons why I tell him he needs to be on his midfoot, all the reasons why I tell him he needs to be in a more minimal type of shoe as he's running, and you roll in here in these big old hokas, because, well, you know, I was running into this little trouble with my heel, or I had this little problem with my this or that. And before long, he became my client. I don't train his son anymore. Now I train him. He's now rolling in in a, a very minimal shoe, He's now capable of running off of his midfoot as opposed to landing on his heel first. He's now able to run at 180 strides per minute, and his times and his efficiency have all just gone through the roof. He's he's improved dramatically, and I think I've yeah. seen him. Uh, I think you know I obviously keep track of the number of times I've seen him because he pays for him, but I think uh-huh. I've, I've seen him six times. Well, so, and I feel like that has a lot to do with. The fact that he became aware of something, he decided to practice it. And it kind of segues into Inga's question um, where she has discovered Spartan racing. She's going to do a super in January. She's looking into doing a longer uh, distance for the Beast later in the year. And she's curious about at what race length should she be eating during the race and at what length is a sports drink sufficient. So it's kind of going into the timing of things um, you know, what would your suggestion be as far as nutrition and athletics is concerned? Uh, it's a good question. And I think that um, depending on the length 
and intensity of the event has much to do with how much energy needs to be replaced. Yeah. And I'd say that inside of a 5K, uh, even up to a 10K, depending on the intensity and the amount of time you plan on being on the course, yeah. odds are you're not going to run out of energy. Uh, you may run into problems that are not energy-related, and they may seem to be energy-related. So, for example, if the intensity of your pace is so high that you get into your, you know, your lactate zone and you're starting to get uh, overwhelmed with lactic acid in your muscles, your perception is fatigue, and you may assume that the solution to that problem would be to feed, where in fact you still have plenty of energy left, it's just that your muscles are being inhibited by the, the overwhelming amount of lactic acid that you've taken on. Right. So I would suggest, and especially being that this is a woman I know her, mm-hmm. she, she probably weighs uh, 130 pounds. Mm-hmm. And a woman that weighs about 130 pounds, it's operating at about 70% of max heart rate. She's probably pushing uh, in the neighborhood of 550 calories an hour. All right. And assuming that you've had a relatively decent meal or been feeding well leading up to this event, um, odds are you're pretty well topped off, which means that in your bloodstream, your liver, and your muscle, you probably are carrying about 1,600 calories of carbohydrate available, which are the energy source that you're going to be drawn from if you get over your threshold. So, you know, just do the math. If you're you're pushing out about five, six hundred calories an hour and you're topped off at about fifteen hundred calories, you're really not going to be into trouble till you're about two hours deep. Uh and so I guess the answer to the question is a sports drink, if you define sports drink, would be something that has um a bit of sugar and has some electrolytes. And if you're getting a little bit of a bleed of carbohydrate back into your bloodstream, it's an important thing to do. But more importantly, getting the electrolytes and hydration is principally the the concern up to about a 10K. Right. And we're talking about uh, super is about eight miles, nine miles, right? Yeah, it's around there, usually eight and a half, nine. Okay, so we're looking at maybe, you know, giving her condition maybe two hours, um, I don't know, maybe a goo packet, something like that, about midway through the course might not be a bad thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so you don't get into a precarious position with your energy stores to let yeah. your blood sugar plummet too much. But when you get into races that are beyond that super, going into like uh, a 14-mile beast, something something like that, then you need to be a little more concentrated <laughs> towards getting foods. And I guess your question is, do I think that eating, let's see, what did she say? Well, she's just talking about race length. Do you, should I eat during the race? And should I have, you know, what length do I need an uh, electrolyte-type drink? And my comments would be, uh, from being, you know, like a racer, it's it's not about race day. It's about what are you doing throughout the week leading up to the race. What are you doing during training? And it's just like you you got to practice, Right. So if you're training and you know that your body starts getting depleted around, say, mile 7 or mile 8, if you've been training for a longer distance, um, then, like for me, for example, um, I don't take anything for a sprint or anything for a super out of the ordinary. 
So my regular wake up and go would be two hours before start time. I take you know, a cup of oatmeal with some protein powder, usually like half a scoop because I don't need to overload with protein. And I'll make sure to take um, an oral IV. I take that hydration supplement with eight ounces of water, you know, beforehand, make sure I'm hydrated throughout the week. It's not ever about, you know, the race day, changing my diet or changing my drink because then you're throwing in variables that your body doesn't realize it's race day. Your body thinks, oh, okay, we're going to do another run. It seems like, you know, we're pushing harder than normal, but that's fine, you know. Um, And for a beast, I carry usually two or three goo packets, which I'll only consume two, and I carry one in case someone's really struggling out there on the course. Um, I personally don't take any uh, special electrolyte unless it's an extra hot day or I've had a lot of excessive, you know, sweating. So for a beast, I might take something like a, a scratch lab or even an invigorate. Well, while we're on the subject, our sponsor for this, one of our sponsors for this show is Scratch Labs. Oh. And one of the things that we're going to give away are a box of these fruit drops that they've come up with. And these fruit drops are made of simple ingredients. They're flavored only with real fruit. And they are very, very clean in respect to the way your your palate deals with them. A lot of these uh, drops, blocks, types of things that they offer up for energy replacement Mm -hmm. are coated in wax. Yeah. And that really gets kind of gacky in your throat, so to speak. Right. But these things are awesome. They sent me some of them a while back. I think the last time we did something with them, and I shared them with my group. We went out for a trail run, and I'm like, oh, these are pretty good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and I, what I was really kind of surprised about was there wasn't that many calories really to speak of, uh-huh. but what they were, what I found that they did is they brought my blood sugar back up. And okay. so this is really an important thing to think about. When you're talking about energy replacement, your bloodstream is where the immediacy of glucose is going to come from initially. And you can strip away the sugar from your bloodstream very quickly. And then your body has to go back to the glycogen stores in the muscle and the liver, and you start slaving off that storage depot. And if you could keep a relatively constant supply of sugar in your bloodstream, you keep yourself from dipping into that resource. You want to stay off that resource as best you can. So an easy way to do that is if you have like a carb, what am I trying to say? If you have a carb (laughs) electrolyte solution in your drink and you're sipping on it over the course of the race, you know, not pounding a bottle, then grabbing another bottle, not not that kind of thing, but just constantly taking... Steady flow. Yeah, like take about four ounces at a time and you get that electrolyte back, and you get that little bit of sugar back into your system, it keeps you from slaving off the energy stores within your liver and your muscles. And that's a really smart approach to even the shorter events. Because even though you won't really get into trouble, noticeable trouble from an energy perspective or even a a hydration or or, uh, an electrolyte concern, you're going to find that your system operates much more efficiently if you just keep things under control. Right. And not, not get to that place where you're like, oh, God, i got to take a goo. Or, anyway, yeah. 
So for whatever yep, it's worth, I I, I've tried these. Uh, I've tried these fruit drops, and it's nothing but fruit, and a lot of water is you know very they're very um, moist. Yeah, they seem really convenient too. It'd be something I'd be interested in trying. Yeah, well, you're gonna have to try them, but uh, oh, we might might have to hook you up. Since uh, Inga has already asked about this type of thing, I think we're going to make sure that she gets some of these scratch labs. Yeah, I think it's definitely something she should try in her training, definitely before race day, and then uh, reap the benefits, you know, on race day, your body's ready. But it's interesting because we've had a couple other questions about supplements and about what to take as far as, you know, running marathons and such. And so our good friend Sarah Wilcox is asking uh, about Beat Elite, which is something that she takes currently before workouts. And she's curious to know that uh, if she took more, would it benefit her during a marathon or a half marathon? What are your thoughts? Well, I take Beat Elite. Yeah. And I have been curious. I've been very, very curious about the product. And I I take it for a lot of different reasons. And I've had the opportunity to interview Dr. John Ivey, who is one of the principal exercise scientists behind the product mm-hmm. uh, at Neogenesis. And so I had a lot of questions to ask him. And sure. you know, he suggested that the older you are, the more important it is to get this, this beet product into your system because the nitrates that you're able to pull out of the beets in this concentrated state are really amazing for your body. What was really interesting to me is I posed the question again recently to Dr. Alan Lim, who is the founder of Scratch Labs, about mm-hmm. a beet juice. And to give you an idea where he comes from, he was the uh, exercise scientist slash feeding coach for Team Garmin, the professional uh, cycling okay. team. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's been on the Tour de France circuit with them, and his responsibility was to feed them all through the course of the tour. And he told me that the guys that he was feeding really, really loved to do beet juice before they went out for their training and their racing. Mm-hmm. And, and what they suggested is they felt that by starting their mornings or starting a race with beet juice in their system, helped them to push harder early, and it kept them from being as hungry late. They didn't feel like they required as much energy in replacement, meaning food, later in their events if they had the beet juice first. And there's no research that indicates that the beet juice will improve your power output, but there is a lot of research that's compelling that suggests it does improve your oxidative capacity, that it helps you to remain aerobic longer. But where I'm going with this is I asked Dr. Ivy myself, I said, look, I'm a pretty big guy. If one packet of this Beat Elite is good, would two packets be better for me? Sure. And he said, no, it doesn't work that way. I was actually yeah. kind of disappointed because I thought, maybe I'll take Darn. six of these bad boys. Yeah. <laughs> and become I think it's like most of the products. It's something that needs to be taken. It's like what you mentioned. You take it every morning that the Garmin cycling team, they felt better off of it. It's not something, again, you take before race day. It's something that you should be taking as a dietary supplement every day. 
Well, I did, and I, I have, and I actually take it, you know, I would try to take it before every workout in the mornings. And, uh, you know, the jury's out. To be really honest with you, I don't know had it made much difference for me. There are some days where I felt like things were going really well for me, and, you know, you always try to point to the culprit that was responsible for the outcome. And I would, I would lend to believe that there were occasions where having taken the beet juice in the morning was a good thing for me. But I don't think that I would have carried it on board and thought, well, you know, I'm six miles into a race. Let me do some more beet juice and see if I can get that extra yardage out of this. Right. I, don't think, I don't think it's that kind of thing. I think you get to a place where you're asking more of it than you really should be asking. Right, so. right. I, I think, yeah, to sum it all up, taking it, you know, more of it during a marathon or half marathon is not something that I think would be an extra benefit. However, taking it, you know, daily as your supplement, um, you know, may, may give you those benefits. And like what you said, you know, may or may not. The thing is to keep in consideration, there are a lot of variables that go into health and and feeling, right? So if you've not slept well, that could affect next day. If you've slept awesome, taken your supplements, and have been exercising, then, hey, you're going to have a rock star day. Um, balance. Balance is really important. Yep. Well, yep. We, this being Black Friday episode and the fact that people are chafing probably to know whether they won something or whether yes. they're what they won. Let's talk about some of the stuff that we're going to give away. Sounds good. All right. For starters, uh, my good friends and sponsor at Rock Tape, these guys are amazing. I've worked with them. I've been involved with them for several years. I reach out to them because, A, I really believe in their, their philosophies and all the benefits that are, I've, I've shown in clients I've worked with and taping strategies and such. But they're really starting to branch out and start to offer more variety in their product line. And they're starting to reach out towards the obstacle community. And they came out with these rock guards, which are essentially shin guards that are of great advantage when you're climbing over obstacles, climbing a rope. I don't know. Do you wear shin guards when you do what you do? You know, I use um, those medical-grade compression by Athletic 8, yep. and I have the calf guards with that. So I definitely have shin protection. I have not used this rock tape shin guard, but I'd be curious because I do have some friends um, that do use it, and they swear by it, especially during CrossFit. Anything that they're doing, like deadlifts or where there's a bar close to their leg, box right. jumps, anything like that, they swear by them. Yeah. Well, these things have... Um a five millimeter neoprene on the shin side and it's a lightweight mesh on the back and I think there's a zipper to bring it up and there's actually a uh, a stirrup so if oh, okay. yeah, you know so it's not going to slide up and down on your leg and uh, just good stuff so nice. so we're going to give away some rock guards okay. and they've come out with a new product called rock sauce chill and this rock sauce chill is essentially it's um, for re relieving minor muscular discomfort. Uh, it's got a strong menthol base to it, and it's got kind of a cooling effect when you're, you know, if you're rubbing it on sore muscles, it just helps to alleviate some of the issues that you're facing. And, of course, rock tape uh, is their principal product, and I've been a fan of their product. I've said it already for many, 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 many years. I can't tell you how many people I've taped 
But I have people that will call me before a race or a circumstance if they have pain or a circumstance they need corrected. And just the taping is saved. I, I don't know how many lives. But they're going to give up some rock sauce chill. They're giving up some rock tape, and they're giving up some rock guards. And That's a sweet package. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about 90 bucks worth of stuff, you know. Dang. But, yeah. So what we're going to do, let's see. Uh, well, let's just go through the list before we start giving stuff away. Yeah, sounds good. Let's keep it rolling. And while we're on the topic of OCR and uh, Spartan racing, my good friend Dan Kruger, who yeah. is one of the directors of marketing for Spartan Race, has offered up a couple of entries to some Spartan races. And so we are able to give away an open heat entry to any race in the U.S. So who we give this to is going to be able to just, I'll give them a, a code that they can plug in when they go to register for an event. And whatever event that they want to enter, which is an open race within the United States, they're in. And that is awesome. You're going to give a couple of those away. And those babies are worth about 129 bucks a piece. And I've got a good friend of mine who is the president of Rudy Project in the U.S. He's the distributor, U.S. distributor for Rudy Project. And his line of, I'm going to call it 2X2i. Um, so there's two X's, a 2, and an I optics. That's his U.S. version of sunglasses that are sport glasses. And i, I got to tell you, I've known these guys for a long time as well. I have a pair of these sunglasses myself. They're fully polarized, just amazing glasses. They're vented at the top, so they don't sweat when you're out there pounding it out. If, I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you're wearing like a baseball cap and you've got your sunglasses on and your, your glasses yeah. tend to fog up a little bit. Well, there's, these glasses are vented over the top of the lens, so okay. it eliminates that potential for fogging. Uh, just some really great glasses for sport. And I think I've heard about these. Uh, Miguel Medina has these, doesn't he? He may very well. He I may think very he well. does because he swears by them. We're going to give some of those away. Sweet. And uh, whoever we give them to, they can go to the site and pick the frame color that they like. They could pick the design that they like. And once they get it all sorted out and let me know what it is, we're going to see that they get those pair. And there's a few different designs, am I right? There's like two or three different styles yep. you can choose from. That's awesome. And let's see. Of course, we talked about the Scratch Labs product. Yep. And then my other sponsor, my principal sponsor, is Medhab, which is a company that produces this really innovative product called RPM Square which are insoles that are the first and only true running power meter in the world. So in other words, you are able to measure power output running, which has been the holy grail for cycling forever. But we've not been able to come up with the technology so far to measure power output while we're running. Well, these guys have got it worked out. And these insoles are no joke, by the way. Uh, when you look at them, you would think, oh, these aren't that special. But I'm telling you, these things will measure step time, ground contact time, flight time, your cadence, sequential force strike, whether you're landing on your heel, your midfoot, your forefoot strike, and acceleration power. 
It's going to actually show you what your power output is in your acceleration. <coughs> and it'll also take like five measurements of live power uh, measurements. Um, let's see, what else does it do? I mean, there's just a whole list of things that these, these well, insoles will do. I'm literally looking at them, and I'm drooling over them. Like, oh, my gosh, that is the only thing that I want for Christmas right now <laughs> are these RPM, what are, they, are they called, RPM squared? Is yep. that what they're called? Yeah. These things are amazing. Yeah. They, they are very, um, it's, a, it's a very complicated process to create, and there's been some companies out there that have been messing with it, and some are offering up variations of some fashion of contact information. Uh, sometimes they're doing it through accelerometer. There's various ways they're trying to approach it. But these actually have uh, a series of sensors in the bottom of the, the footbed. It's like an insole that goes into your shoe, replaces your other insole, and it measures all this information as you make contact with the ground and or flight. And now, from what I understand, and I, I mean, I'm kind of shooting from the hip now because I haven't had it in my own care yet, but I've been told that they'll distinguish the difference between your forward power output relative to your vertical power output. And this is really, in my mind, very important because if you can distinguish the difference between the power that's going up and down versus going laterally in your, in your forward progress, you almost can do, um, a, do the math and just distinguish the difference of your functional power in the direction you're traveling. And also take into account what part of the foot is making contact with the ground, which is going to point towards efficiency. And all this stuff reports to your iPhone or your Android phone. Well, that's the big seller is no cables, no wires, right. no tubes and you know bells and whistles. It's literally put them in your shoes, track it. And to kind of summarize what she said, it tells you what kind of efficiency you're losing by running more up and down versus forward. You know what I mean? Like yeah. so much efficiency is lost when you have that, you know, up and down hopping in your run. So this is huge. Okay, to me, those are the golden egg. Yeah. <laughs> well, this this is pretty much a golden egg. These these puppies go out for about 630 bucks a pair. Holy cow. Now, they are um, the rechargeable. Uh, they're rechargeable, and they come with a little charging platform. You just basically set your insoles on the on the little charging plate. Uh, you leave it there for about an hour, charges them up, and off you go. You're good to go. And I think you're able to collect, what does it say? I think um, five, yeah, you, hours, five hours worth of uh, actual training time that you can, that you can gather. That is wild. Yeah. yeah. All right, so um, let's start giving some stuff away. Oh, these people are lucky. I know. <laughs> now, the people that are listening that didn't take the time to write. They're kicking themselves. Well, we got no, one, no two, three, intended. four, five, six, seven people. We've got seven people that have taken the time to write a little bit to us, and yep. we're going to give them some stuff. So let's start from the – let's go – we already talked about giving Inga some Scratch Labs fruit drops, right? Yeah, we wanted to definitely get her her nutrition trucking. Okay. So I think Scratch Labs would be awesome. For Let's her. also give her that one of those um, packages of the uh, rock tape. Okay. So Good that idea. that means that she's getting a roll of tape. She's going to get the rock guards and the rock sauce. Okay. Shoot. Merry Christmas. Yep. And um, 
Let's see. Let's see here. Let's give. Uh, uh, let's see. Oh, you pick somebody. Well, I'm looking at Jeff here. Jeff and Antonio, who have been transitioning between, you know, zero drop shoes, running those hills, stuff like that. And I think Jeff could really benefit as well uh, from some of that rock, the rock sauce. Is that what it's called? Yeah, rock sauce chill. Yep. You know, he's talking about calf injuries, you know, kind of soreness. So that could really be good, as well as some tape, you know. Sure. And uh, if we've got some, if we've got more of that package deal, I think Antonio would really benefit as well. Let's give it to him. Let's do it. Let's. So both of these guys are going to get the uh, the rock tape package. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Good. And you know, I'm looking at Lawrence, and he's he's really into the whole OCR and obstacles and running, and I think that that kind of passion, that kind of incentive, deserves a free race. All right. Done. Lawrence, you, you win. You get yourself a free entry into a race. And, and um, let's, uh, to some degree, I like to put people on the spot a little bit. You okay. Know, um, so this Kathy, Kathy Rivera, um, you yeah. know, I pulled her up online, and we've kind of communicated back and forth a few times. And I saw a picture of her. It looked like she might have been doing an OCR event. Okay. Um, so let's put her under the gun and give her a free entry. Yeah, you know, even if she hasn't, let's give her that free entry and might make a believer out of her. You know, <laughs> give her give her the OCR bug. It's very contagious, I think. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I like it. And uh, let's see. So what have we got left? We've got some glasses. Oh, we got all kinds of stuff left. Let's uh let's see. Um let's you know what? Let's give let's give Kathy let's give Kathy a pair of those sunglasses. Okay. What do you think? Yeah, I think she's She's deserving of it. Okay, so you're gonna keep she's track an avid of this. Avid runner. Right? Kathy's getting sunglasses, and she's gonna get um, free race. A free race. Yep. And let's give Sarah. You know what? We gave away. What we we gave, we had two entries to give away. We gave one one two away. We gave two away. Yep, we gave two away. One to Lawrence. One to Kathy. Okay. Let's give Sarah the the rock sauce package too. Okay. Um, with the tape and the the uh, shin guards, and let's go ahead and give her a box of the uh, scratch labs too. Okay, I think at this point we have one pair of glasses to give away left. Okay. And then of course the insoles. Yeah. What do we give? Well, we got some more stuff to give away. We got we've given away what two packages of the uh, the rock the rock tape stuff. Three, so we've got two more to Jeff. give away. Okay, okay, so we've got Jeff, Antonio, and Sarah getting those. Let's, uh, did we give Lawrence um, the uh, the rock sauce package too? Nope, we just gave him a race. Let's so give we it to give him. him. Okay, a race with some rock tape. Yep. I like it. Yep. So we got one more of those to give away. Okay, I'm trying to see. So pretty much all of them have gotten that then. Let's give Casey the insoles. I've been holding back. Yeah. Let's no, give them really, to her. We need to. Yeah, we need to. Casey, they're coming. Insoles. They're coming for you. Oh, you lucky dog, you. <laughs> and we got, uh, did I did I tell you I'm going to give you a pair of glasses? You did not tell me. Yeah, you get a pair of glasses, too. Woo! Partay! Because <laughs> when you're cool, the sun's always shining. Right, so the, the glasses <laughs> are given away. Yep. And what do we got left? We got, like, one... I think we've got one rock tape package, and then I don't know how much Scratch Lab stuff you got. And that's it. Uh, no, we gave away the Scratch Labs. 
It's done. So I think just um, if you No, have, wait a minute, wait a minute. we got one more thing to give away. Um, uh, we'll just go ahead and give that to Sarah, too. The, 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 I have some electrolyte mix, too. We'll give that to Sarah, too. I think that's everything, then, because you gave away, was it four or five? We have rock five tape. rock tape packages to give away. And we've got Jeff, Lawrence, Antonio, Kathy, and Sarah getting those. Is that right? I think so. Because Inga was getting all the Scratch Lab stuff, most of it. Okay. So what have I left out? I think I think that's everything because two glasses are gone. We've got all the races out, the cadence insoles out, Scratch Lab done. I think that's it. All right. Well, there you have it. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, so for Thanksgiving, we did good stuff. We've given stuff away. All these people had to do is write down a few interesting questions, let us belabor those answers for them, and toss off some really cool stuff for their trouble. They invested in us. We invest in them. They invest in themselves. It's wonderful. (laughs) Well, listen, Maggie, I want you to enjoy your holiday. Oh, uh, I will. Don't. When do you got to go back to school? Friday. You know, I, yeah, I go back to school actually Monday. So they gave us a long, a kind of a longer week. Hallelujah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. good luck with that. And, Thank you uh, so much. Enjoy your holiday, and everybody that's been listening to the show, everybody that's been listening to the show all year. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and um, thank you for our listeners that took the time to write in. And you guys have an amazing Thanksgiving. We'll see you out there next season. Yep. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.